Good morning, church family. It is snowy out there, but there's Easter in here. Amen? What a great, really, uh, what a wonderful message that is that uh, all of us need to be reminded of. That uh, and this, is why, this is why we worship on Sunday, because that's the day Jesus got up. That's why. Anybody ever ask you, why do you all worship on Sunday? Because that's when Jesus got up. All right, and now we're up, and I'm so grateful to get to worship with my church family and my brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Speaking of snow, I read an article this past week that I think was appropriate for this weekend. The article's titled, Let Winter Do Its Work. Let Winter Do Its Work. And in that article, the author said, Um, The the author was talking about the four seasons, spring as a season of planting, summer as a season of growth and activity, and fall as a season of changing leaves and uh, long outdoor walks. And the author wrote, we wish it would be spring and summer and fall all the time. We, we want the sun to always be shining. We want our lives to be filled with new things that are being planted and growing and blooming. And because of that, many of us have a hard time with winter. But winter has its place, and winter will do some important work if we will let it. Winter is a season of recovery after a time of intense activity. Winter is when you step back and you let the roots of your life grow deep and take the time to clear out those things in your life that have died in the past year. Winter is when we pay attention to what we have found to be true. It's a time to let go of failures and regrets. It's a time to repair what's broken and sharpen what perhaps has grown dull. Winter is not a time of planting or harvesting. It's, it's, it's not a time to start new things. It's a time to stop and pause, and get ready for the next season God has in store for us. Spring is coming. It'll get here. There'll be new things to plant and tend. There'll be new fields to plow and to harvest. But right now, today, this morning, it's winter. And winter has important work to do. So then let winter do its work. Today's scripture is for winter. Um, If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Exodus chapter 19. Uh, if, If you're new here at Windsor Road, we welcome you to our church family. Thank you for coming out here on this winter Sunday morning. And uh, we have been really immersing ourselves in um, the second book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, in this particular season. And um, Exodus has so many lessons for us. Last week, we learned about giving and receiving feedback. That's in the Old Testament book of Exodus. Yes, Exodus 18. This chapter, Exodus 19, is a scripture for winter. And by that I mean this. 
the first 18 chapters of Exodus, there is a flurry of activity. Israel is crying out to God. God has sent Moses to deliver his people from slavery. Moses miraculously leads Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea. There's manna falling from heaven. There's water emerging from a rock. There's even a battle against the Amalekites. And then, as we said, Exodus 18 gives us wisdom from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro. And three months later, after the plagues, after the Red Sea, after all that's transpired, three months after they left Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai, and the pace slows to that of winter. Winter. And I think you'll see what I mean if you follow along with me. We're going to look at the whole chapter. I want to read the first nine verses. Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, that's about three months, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. This is God's word. So after... All of their activity in chapters 1 through 18, here in Exodus 19, through the end of the book, through the next book, the book of Leviticus, and even on into a portion of the book of Numbers, Israel stays at Sinai. So for about a year, they're not going anywhere. No one is chasing them or attacking them or wanting to re-enslave them. It's a season to pause and learn. It is, well, in a way you could say winter at Sinai. A season to learn about the God who rescued them. You see, all of this has taken place so quickly 
the people, I mean, we read these verses and we think that the people are intimately acquainted with the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Well, they didn't have what we have here in terms of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. I mean, their lives for 400 years were busy as slaves. When the sun rose, they started working. When the sun set, they might get some sleep. And then that was repeated for four centuries. Who is this God who rescued them? So here at Sinai, it is the Lord himself who says, you know, it is I who brought you out of Egypt. Now let me introduce myself to you. Let me tell you about myself so that when you receive my words, you will know my intentions. And so Exodus chapter 19 begins um, really a new section in the book of Exodus, and it's a section that's called the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant. Now just take your Bible and flip over to Exodus 24, verse 7. Just two pages over in your church Bibles, page 65. Exodus 24, 7 says, Then Moses took the Book of the Covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. Covenant, what is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship defining document. A relationship defining document. And specifically, the book of the covenant consists of Exodus 20 through 23. In Exodus 20 are the Ten Commandments. In Exodus 21, 22, and 23 are case law or case studies clarifying the Ten Commandments. But Exodus 20 through 23 are the book of the covenant. That's what Moses is referring to. That's what Exodus is referring to. A relationship-defining document between God and his people. The God who said, I will be your God and you will be my people. So whatever, whatever is in the book of the covenant is first of all grounded in a relationship between the God of this universe who is crazy about his people. He loves his people. And he introduces himself to his people. That's why he tells who he is first before he gives his word. And in Exodus chapter 19, we learn who is this God who rescued us. And Exodus 19 gives us three very important traits. And here they are. Exodus 19. God is gracious. God is holy. And God requires a go-between. Grace, holy, go-between. This is the God who rescued you and gives you the book of the covenant, this relationship-defining document.
So let's just walk through chapter 19 and look at each of these traits, beginning with grace. God's grace brought Israel from slavery to worship. So the Exodus tells about how God's people were free from so that they could be free for. It's not, we often think, well, it's just freedom from. Freedom from slavery. Well, that's only half of it. Freedom from leads to freedom for. Freedom from slavery for worship. And that's what we see at Sinai. Verse 1 says, three months after the exodus, Israel came there. Did you notice as I was reading those verses in verses 1 and 2, kind of sounded redundant to us uh, get-to-the-point Americans. Note that in four times over two verses, we read the location. Verse 1, wilderness of Sinai. Verse 2, wilderness of Sinai, wilderness before the mountain. Yeah, we get it. Well, why the emphasis? Here's why. Pay attention. At Sinai, when God's people encamp at the base of Mount Sinai, did you know that they are geographically further away from the land of promise than when they were in Egypt? Furthermore, God promised that Israel would possess a land flowing with milk and honey. Images of, of fertile, verdant uh, uh, scenery. Sinai is not that. It's a mountainous, rugged, desert region. So Israel is further away than where they're supposed to be in harsher climate. <laughs> and in that unforgiving wilderness they meet God. Now, is that not the classroom of grace or what? You know, you give your life to Christ. You experience love from God that you've never experienced before. Your soul soars. You just you feel, you feel on an emotional heart level the joy of God and the fruit, harvest, produce of the Holy Spirit Love, joy, peace, patience. And you just think, is it, I mean, will it feel this joyful all the way to heaven from here on out? And things go downhill, right? God takes us away from where he says he's going to lead us. And we suffer, don't we? Did, did he fraud us? Did he trick us? No, no, no. He's teaching us. And like Israel, we get to the promised land through the desert. Did you know that the book of Exodus is summarized in Genesis 15, 13, and 14? Just think of 15, 13, 14, all right? 15, 13, 14. Here's the book of Exodus in the book of Genesis. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Suffering always comes before glory. Good Friday always comes before Resurrection Sunday, always. Jesus himself 
walked this path. Jesus emerged from the Jordan River in baptism, preaching the kingdom of God. It was like a Red Sea experience, uh, and people believed. Uh, The word was preached, miracles, but then came the wilderness of the cross. And the cross is the only way to the empty tomb. Suffering always comes before glory. That's the lesson of grace. And so you see, we should expect grace to do its best work in the desert, in the wilderness. And there, at Sinai, verses 1 through 9, this nation met the God of grace who said in verse 4, you saw what I did to the Egyptians. You witnessed that. You saw how I bore you up on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And, And it's a beautiful image. Now we think eagle as in bald eagle and the American eagle and that eagle in Exodus 19 was more like a vulture, quite frankly. The griffin vulture. All right, Uh, look it up. And, and, and here's, what's, here's what's interesting. When those young vultures, when the, I would say eaglet, vulturelet, I don't know what you call little vultures. When those young vultures would become exhausted, mom would fly beneath and support that baby vulture all the way home. It's a beautiful picture of grace, isn't it? And in other words, grace is God bearing us up and bringing us home. And we could spend the rest of this service hearing from you all about the day you didn't think you were going to make it. The day you didn't think you did not think you could last one more day. But, it, but when you came to the end of it, 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 it may have been the end of your road, but it was the beginning of God's ministry of bearing you up and bringing you home. And verses 4 through 6 tell us that that grace is followed by obedience, which is then followed by blessing. And, And get the sequence. Grace, obedience, blessing. And that is the irreversible sequence of deliverance. God delivers his people who then respond to him with grateful obedience to their new master, and out of this flows blessings. And it's irreversible because God never said while Israel was in Egypt, here are my Ten Commandments, let's see how well you do, and if you attain a level of proficiency in keeping them, then I'll look into your request for deliverance. That is not gospel news. There's nothing good about that. Grace declares, grace says, you can't obey your way out, fight your way out, negotiate your way out. Grace says, you trusted, I acted, and I carried you on my back, and I brought you to myself. I was your Uber. Uber. You know what Uber means, don't you? Supreme. Super. That's me, God says. I I, I bore you up, and I brought you to myself. You just got in 
and took a ride on my shoulders. And I was happy to carry you. Because I will be your God and you'll be my people. You're my people. I love you. You have to understand that if you're going to appreciate the book of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Because it's in the context of a relationship between a God who's crazy about his people, this God of grace. Hmm. Uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones was a pastor uh, in London um, in the 20th century. He once said, I've got a very simple test to see if people understand grace. He says, after I've explained the way to Christ to somebody, I say to that person, now are you ready to say that you're a Christian? And, and then this person often hesitates and they say, well, I don't feel like I'm good enough yet. I don't think I'm ready to say I'm a Christian now. And Martin Lloyd-Jones says, at once I know I have been wasting my breath because they're still thinking in terms of themselves and what they have to do. I mean, it sounds very modest to say, well, I, I don't think I'm good enough, but it's, it, but it's a very denial of the faith because the essence of the Christian faith is to say, he is good enough and I am in him. And as long as you go about yourself saying, well, I'm not good enough, I'm not good enough, you're denying God. You're denying the gospel. You're denying the very essence of the faith, and, and you'll never be happy. You, you'll think you're better at times, and then you'll find yourself you're not, a good, not as good at times as you thought you were. You're going to be up and down and up and down forever. Lloyd-Jones says, how can I put it plainly? It doesn't matter if you've almost entered into the depths of hell. It doesn't matter if you're guilty of murder as well as every other vile sin. It does not matter from the standpoint of being justified before God at all. You are no more hopeless than the most moral and respectable person in the world. Grace says, I bore you and I brought you to myself. What a God we serve, church. This God of grace. Lest we think that grace is squishy, we must read on. Because as forcefully and as confidently that we must hold to God's grace in bearing us up and bringing us home, we must see something else about this God who has rescued us. God is grace. God is holy. Holy. And that's this section here in verses 9 through 20. So God tells Moses in these verses, I want you to go to the people, verse 10, consecrate them today and tomorrow, let them wash their garments, and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Sinai in the sight of all the people. So consecrate yourselves, Company's coming, get ready. Be ready. Stay at the base of Sinai. Do not venture up the mountain. Uh, verse 15. Even intimate marital relationships between a husband and a wife must be subject to this preparation for God's arrival. In other words, God wants all attention upon him as he comes. And... and you know, be ready for the third day. And then the third day came, verse 16. 
And I mean, this is like a scene out of the Lord of the Rings or something. You know, has Sinai become Mordor? What's going on here? There's, there's lightnings and thunder and thick cloud on the mountain, very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled, huh? Next time you think to yourself, I would love to meet God. Read these verses. Huh? Verse 18, the smoke went up like a kiln, and the fire, and the earth shook. Who is this? I thought he was a mother eagle who gracefully bore the young in flight. This peaceful, solitary skyline, you know, inaudible soaring. This is grace. Gives way to this terrifying spectacle of fire and thunder and smoke and lightning and earthquakes. What is, what is this? This is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Now, we often think of the word holiness as, oh, God doesn't drink alcohol and God doesn't use tobacco. Well, you know, no. Let's go deeper than that, okay? Let's go deeper than that. God's holiness, here's the definition I want us to Ponder from these verses, God's holiness is his radical difference that arouses awe. Now that's holiness. His radical difference that arouses awe. Think Grand Canyon. Think explosive oceanic waves. Think standing at the rim of an active volcano. Think storm chaser in central Oklahoma. Who would do that? People do. Why? Because they're transfixed. They're in awe. There's a, there's a draw. And at the same time, there's danger, isn't there? There's danger. Who is this God? He is the God who beckons you to come close. You see, you, you see this, this spectacle at the Grand Canyon and you go to the edge. Don't go too close. You could die. God beckons us to come close, but not too close. Verse 21, the Lord said to Moses, go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Do you get that? There's this, there's this draw, closer and closer, but it's God's holiness is fatal. Don't get too close. This is, and this is, not about, this is not about God being moody. It's about God being God. This is who he is. He's holy. In the book of Revelation, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy Lord. It doesn't say love, 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 Lord. It doesn't say hope, 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 Lord. It's holy, holy. It's, it's the only, um, it's the only uh, modifier that's repeated three times in Scripture. Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. The word holy means literally to cut to separate, meaning God is not like us. 
And the boundaries and the warnings here in these verses are intended to teach a clear demarcation between creator and creation. Later in the book of Exodus, Exodus 33, Moses will say to God, show me your glory. Why, why would he say that? Because there's something about us. We are wired for awe. We are created to be drawn to glory. Moses says, show me your glory. God says, no, it'll kill you. Can't. You can see my back, but you can't see my face. It'll kill you. What is so terrifying about God's holiness anyway? What is it? Well, it goes beyond big weather. It is about our falling short of God's holy character. Uh, People, pastors most, we are in such deep denial about the self-protective masks we wear to cover our sin, and we're able to fool each other because we're all the same. We all fall short. But to step foot in the presence of pure holiness would strip us bare. We, we fear falling short. We fear falling short. We, we do. Uh, for example, when you enroll in school, you're in graduate school or PhD program, you you, you know what you do. You put yourself in a place where your work is being evaluated by someone more competent and more experienced than you who has the power to pass or fail you. And you want to get it right. And so you worry and you fret over that paper or that project or that assignment. You want to prepare for that test. Can I measure up? Is this going to work out? It's this terrible. I'm going to start from scratch. No, I don't have time. There's pressure. And, and you know, if that level of acid-producing pressure exists in the presence of your very fallible professor, what must it be like to be into the presence of a holy God? You see what I'm saying? In Luke chapter 5, verse 8, when Simon Peter first met Jesus, Luke says he, that Simon fell on his knees and said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Now, why would Peter say that? I mean, did Peter just figure it out that he was sinful? No. No, he'd been fooling people all of his life until he stepped into the presence of the sinless Christ before whom there is no fooling. And furthermore, this sinless, pure, holy Christ is moving towards him. See, the Lord is coming down on the mountain. He's, he's pursuing. He's calling. Uh, C.S. Lewis put it this way. It's always shocking to meet life where we thought we were alone. Uh, like that scary scene in the darkness when you hear breathing next to you. Look out, we cry. It's alive. He wrote, there comes a moment when the children who have been playing burglars in the house suddenly stop and say, what was that? A, a real footstep in the hall. There comes a moment when people who have been dabbling in religion suddenly draw back. What was that? Supposing we have really found him, or more likely, he found us. He found us. 
And then Lewis wrote, people, people like an impersonal God, that's well and good. And then a subjective God of beauty and truth and goodness inside our own heads, well, that's better still. A formless life force surging through us, a vast power which we can tap for our agenda. Oh, that's best of all. But God himself, alive, pulling at the other end of the cord, perhaps approaching at an infinite speed, a hunter, a warrior, a king, a husband. Now that's quite another matter. And this God who is impossible impossible, who bears us up, but it is impossible for us to bear. He shrouds his glory in a cloud. You see that? So he clouds himself to shield us from fatal glory. And the message is clear, isn't it? I want you in my life. I want you in my presence. And yet sinners will not survive the presence of a holy God. So how do we resolve this, this God who is all grace and all holy? Well, that's where we get to this third word here in Exodus 19. It's the word go between. Go between, verses 23 through 25. Do you notice how many times Moses went up and down the mountain? Do you, do you notice that in these verses? At three times, uh, verse 3, 8, and 20. Moses is going up and down the mountain. He's the go-between. He's a mediator. He is communicating God's will to Israel, and he's keeping Israel from coming too close. And you know where I'm going with this. For Hebrews, in the New Testament, declares that Moses was a mediator. Hebrews says that Moses was a faithful servant over the house of God, and yet there followed Moses the true mediator, a better mediator, Jesus, the uber mediator, Jesus, who is the go-between. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You see, on the cross, Jesus' death was about crying out grace. His holy body cried out grace. The thunder and the fire and the loud noises came crashing on Christ. The rocks shook. The earth quaked. Matthew's gospel is haunting. Dead were raised. The temple veil which shielded worshipers from the glory of God was torn and with the death of Christ, the true mediator, there's no more need for a barrier because the penalty of sin has been paid. The cross satisfied God's justice. We don't need a cloud for we are the temple now. In us resides the spirit of holy grace. Not because of anything we've done, but because of his mercy. Because he was shaken we can live unshakable lives for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And this is why 
centuries later, in the New Testament book of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 18 to 24, the Hebrew writer would refer back to Exodus 19. What Moses and Israel experienced then, that's not our experience now. And here's what Hebrews 12 says. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Isn't that what we read in Exodus 19? This, that's, that, that's not what you've come to. What have you come to? Oh, keep reading. Hebrews 12, 22, you've come to Mount Zion. You've come to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've, you've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. That, that's our, this is our faith. You've come to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. This is, this is us. You've come to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. You, you are, wherever you are today, you're not alone if you're in Christ. These verses tell us that. You, you've come to a big city. You've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. Jesus, full of grace, full of holiness, who is our mediator. And it took eight inches of snow for me to remember that. Hmm. Right? Winter is the season to pause and reflect and sit in awe of God, whose grace carries us on eagle's wings, whose holiness transfixes us with his radical distinctiveness. And he calls us to himself, and then he provides a go-between so that we can survive the experience. And this go-between is Jesus, clothed in holy grace, who has done for us what we could never do on our own. I close with another article. This article is by Chad Bird, and it's titled, I love it, What Have You Done for God Lately? Too Much. Listen, if there's anything we need to work harder at in modern Christianity, it's doing nothing. Recall Jesus and his conversation with his friend Martha. Turn off the oven, Martha. Don't set the table. Just come over. Sit alongside with your sister and enjoy Jesus. We, we, we've, we have forgotten that the more we try to do for Jesus, the more we get in his way of doing things for us. Jesus never said be busy and know that I'm impressed. He said, be still and know that I'm God. And Jesus is the God who doesn't ask how much you've done for him. He tells you how much he's done for you. And he's built an entire kingdom for you from the wood of a bloodstained cross. 
And every little word he speaks is more important than any book someone writes on his behalf. And he isn't sitting around with a ledger in his lap tallying up how much we've done this day to curry his favor. He's beckoning us to sit at his feet, to listen, to learn, to love his word and his gifts. Yes, there's plenty of good things to do in this world. Yes, we're going to be talking about missions trips later on here in the service. Of course, good we do for family, friends, good we do for enemies. But all the good we may do is not the good that matters most. What matters most is recognizing the wonderful plan that God has for each of our lives. And that wonderful plan is this, to crucify and resurrect us with him. That's the plan. The plan is to divorce us from our works and our doing and to marry us to the works and doings of Jesus to baptize us into that body that bore our sins and to resurrect us to brand new life in the living body of Jesus. In him, we rest in what he has done for us. Oh, Christian, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary, to sit at the feet of our Savior and to sit in the stillness of winter and receive his love. What have you done for Jesus lately? Nothing. And in doing nothing, all has been done. Amen.